0: So we're looking at John chapter one, verses thirty through thirty-four, thirty-five through fifty-one. I worked at, when I worked at Long Creek. You can imagine the variety of individuals that we we had to work with. I mean, we had just the whole spectrum of people, and I, I really learned a lot about working with different people. It was a great experience for me. So we had the drug addicts that would come in, and we had to work with them. And the, the drug addicts were Really hard to work with because mainly what we saw in them was that they were really good at lying. And they would lie to you all the time. So you never had a clue what was true, what was not true. And then we had the passive-aggressive individuals. Those guys were my absolute favorite. That's sarcastic. I could not stand the passive-aggressive individuals. These are the ones who brought out aggression in me. Because they were the ones who were just, they would tell you something, they would try to do, you know, but they would just kind of, you know, go back and forth and tell you one thing, what you wanted to hear at the moment, but they weren't even planning on doing it. And you can never really pin them down, and working with them was was really difficult. Then you had the rebellious, the, just the outright, Mr. Labaz, I'm going to tell you what's happened, I'm not going to do that. You guys are going to me, wrestle me to the ground, you're going to end up putting me in the room, and then we're going to forget about the whole thing afterwards. And I, I really enjoyed that because I I knew what I was getting, right? Who doesn't that's what I like. So there's a tip for all of you. Just come right out and say, You're not gonna hurt my feelings, you're not gonna do anything. Just tell me, right? Hey, I'm not gonna do that. I think you stink right now. Okay, all right, let's go. And then they would do that, and then later on it'd be okay. We had those that were apathetic, didn't care. Those that were traumatized, who needed a lot of sensitivity. Those that were lonely, those that were scared, we had the bullies. We had the victims and so on and so on and so on. All of these individuals, it's kind of like the church. No, I'm just kidding. That guy might be, I don't know. Uh, So we had all these people, but we had one goal. The goal was to get them to change. The goal was to get them to not do the behaviors that they were engaging in, to teach them some skill sets, to provide for them a purpose other than what they were doing at the time. But we couldn't bring them to that goal all in the same way, could we? Because they were all different. Some were more willing than others. Some needed more care than others. Some needed tougher tactics than others. But we all had the same goal for them at the end, and that was change. You know, Jesus works with us in the same way. We all come from different places, different backgrounds. And we have different personalities. But he has the same goal. To bring us to himself so that he can change us. But the way that he does that is different. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What Jesus did back then is the same that Jesus does now with individuals. All of the individuals that we're going to encounter in this passage today are different. And Jesus calls them to himself in a different way. We're going to be focusing on two characters mainly, Peter and Nathaniel. But along the way, we're going to be seeing other characters who personally encounter Jesus, how they come to Jesus, but the end result is still the same. When they meet the Messiah, they are changed. I see two ways that he, in which he deals with these individuals, two ways in which he deals with Peter, and in which, one way in which he deals with Peter, and one way in which he deals with Nathaniel. In both encounters, he reveals himself to these individuals in two different ways. But the result of that revelation is the same the first way that we're going to be looking at today, the first way in which he reveals himself to Peter, is in verses 35 through 42. He tells us who we will be. So follow along, verses 35 through 42. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We've found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So as we go through... This passage, our main focus is going to be the meeting of Peter and Nathaniel with Jesus. However, as I was saying, we're going to go through and we're going to see other individuals and how they begin to follow Jesus and how that happens. We're also going to see certain aspects of discipleship, how discipleship is kind of lived out in our everyday lives, how it was lived out in their lives and how it can be lived out in our lives. I love where we pick up the story. So where did we leave John the Baptist the other week? We left him standing, right? He's standing there. And here it says he's standing in his normal place. So this was John's normal place, but also John is saying his normal thing. What is he saying? Behold the Lamb of God. John again is pointing away from himself. He was denying himself, denying that he is the Christ, And he's pointing to Jesus. And what we begin to see here, what John, the author, is doing is he's fading out John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist's goal. His goal is that I become less and Jesus becomes more. So now we're going to be seeing John the Baptist kind of fade out of the picture here and Jesus taken front and center. So what he's doing here and he's standing with two of his disciples. So they're hanging out with John. And then John has those two guys next to him and he goes, look the Lamb of God. So these two disciples, what do they do? They move. They leave and they begin to follow Jesus. So they hear exactly what they needed to hear. Behold the Lamb of God. And that is the beginning statement for all of us who takes away the sin of the world. That is how we begin that journey. We see something different about Jesus. We hear who he is and what he can do for us, and we begin to follow him. And what you see here is one of the first steps of discipleship. Folks, we cannot acknowledge Jesus from afar. We cannot listen to what someone is saying about who he is and be like, oh, that's great, there's the Lamb of God, and not do what? Move in his direction, John is standing there, and the two disciples that are standing with him, they take those first steps. What do they do? Jesus is walking, and we all know where Jesus is headed. Jesus is headed to Calvary. And those two disciples begin to do what? They follow him. That is the first step of discipleship. We need to move from the place that we are at. We cannot be disciples of Jesus and not walk where he is walking. So they go after him, but notice what happens next. Jesus is the one who initiates this relationship with them. He sees them following, right? And he turns around and he says, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, you guys are great. I can't wait till you see what I got in store for you. This is gonna be awesome. I'm so glad you're. Is that what he says? Starts handing them out little pamphlets and stuff and giving them coffee mugs and things like that. No, I'm okay with coffee mugs. We do that here, right? He's like, hey, I got a party. Come on. I'm so happy. No, what does he do? And he does. I love, I love the way Jesus handles people. Because he does this throughout the Gospels, right? He qualifies or clarifies their motives. Hey, what is it that you're looking for? What are you looking for? That is a question that he asks all of us at the beginning of our journey with him, and he asks us throughout our journey with him. What is it exactly? Why are you following me? Are you following me for success in this world? Are you following me for fortune and fame? Are you following me for a platform for yourself? Are you following me for your comfort or are you following me for my kingdom? Are you following me for salvation or self-satisfaction? Because if we're following him for all of those other reasons, Jesus, he's not your guy. But if we're following him because of who he is, because of forgiveness, because of his kingdom, then he's your man. He asks the question, clarifies their motives, and then what does he do? He invites them into a personal encounter with him. Second aspect of discipleship that we see here is if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to spend some time with him. He asks them a pretty open-ended question. What is it that you're looking for, right? Clarifying their motives so they can answer And they say, they're kind of honest about it. And I don't think they came right out and say what they wanted. They wanted to do what? Get to know them. So they say, hey, where are you staying? Can we hang out with you for a little bit? Can we spend some time with you? Can we get to know you? John just said this about you. We're going to kind of figure this out. We're going to interview you. We're going to kind of talk to you. We're going to spend time with you. And he invites them to where they are staying. And they go along with him. That's all they did. They just are like, okay, hey, let's go. But if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to spend time with him. We need to get to know him. And all of this happens in a, an extremely simple fashion. And what also we're going to be seeing here throughout this passage is just the way people come to faith in Christ. This is very, very natural. I mean, these guys want to go. And Jesus is kind of like, come on. And then the encounter changes them. As a result of this encounter, they believe. You know, one disciple is not mentioned here. So Andrew is mentioned, but there's another disciple is not mentioned here. And some commentators think that it might be John, which is extremely possible. John left his name out. But I think, I think also what might be the case is that he's unnamed so that you and I can put our names right there. It can be just like any one of us. Jesus says to us, hey... Come and spend some time with me. And the result of that time spent is belief. So Andrew is one of the, brother, one of the disciples that believe here. And what is the first thing that Andrew does? He goes and he gets his brother. He goes and he tells him, "Hey, we have found the Messiah." Gentleman tells a story. If you've been a Christian for a while, you know that we're supposed to do what? What are we supposed to do? Share our faith. But that's where things get dicey, right? That's where it gets a little bit difficult. In her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, kind of like that title, Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard wrote about when she lived in rural Virginia. She went to meet her neighbor for the first time. A woman came to the screen door. She was polite but very nervous she says she didn't let me go she was worried about something she worked her hands and she waited on the other side of the screen door until she came out with us. so the lady goes out and splurts it out do you know the lord jesus is your personal savior she says my heart went out to her no wonder she had been so nervous she must have had to ask this of everyone said, so I wanted to make her as happy as possible to reward her courage and then run. She said, we sympathize with that woman, don't we? She embarrasses us a bit, but we sympathize. Why? Because Jesus told us to do what? Make disciples, to share our faith, to be fishers of men. But the question is how? How do we do that? How does he do it here? Who is the first person that he goes to? And I want us to see this throughout the text. They go to people that they are already in a relationship with. They know these individuals. They were with Jesus one day. Andrew was with Jesus one day. And he goes and he shares what he knows about Jesus. Does he know everything he needs to know? Absolutely not. Is he going to grow in his knowledge about Jesus? Yes. And who the Messiah is? Did they have a viewpoint of who the Messiah was? That probably does not line up with who Jesus really is. Yes, they did. But Andrew goes and just tells him, hey, we found the Messiah. He tells him, what he knows about Christ. But the second thing is more important. He brings Peter to Jesus. It's kind of funny because Peter comes kind of willingly, doesn't he? And Peter doesn't say anything this entire time. Andrew's like, hey, we found the Messiah. And you know why? Because it's Peter. Peter's like, all right, dude, I'm all in, I'm going. He doesn't say anything. Peter responds willingly and goes to meet him. The goal of our witness is to tell and take. Hey, I met someone. This person changed my life. This person can change your life too. His name is Jesus. I want you to come and meet him says he's the Messiah, he's the one that they've been looking for. And as I said, this view of the Messiah is probably informed by some different notions, current notions that would grow as they would grow with Jesus as well. As they would grow as they began, uh, began to know Jesus better. But the implications of what he says to Peter is, are amazing. That's what gets Peter's attention. Hey, we, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one who is going to change Israel. This is the one who is going to Change our lives. I found them. I want you to come with me. So now Simon meets Jesus. And what happens is amazing. NYU professor Adam Alter had observed the power that names have to shape destiny. We've talked about this in the book of Ruth called nominative determinism, which literally means a name-driven outcome. Alter points to the following examples. The current Lord Chief Justice of England and of Wales, his name, Justice Igor Judge. His colleague, Lord Justice Laws. In the realm of athletics pursuits, Anna Smashnova, what do you think she plays? tennis, yes. How about Usain Bolt? He is one of the fastest runners. Stephen Robotham, he's an Olympic rower. And Derek Kickett plays, yeah, football. He's a footballer. Other examples include Daniel Snowman. He's the author of a book about the Arctic and Antarctica. Christopher Koch, was a notorious Jamaican drug dealer, the rapper Black Rob. He was sentenced to seven years in prison for grand larceny. He says, "Are all these examples, uh, are all these just exa- all these examples just coincidences? For instance, would Usain Bolt run just as fast if his last name was Plod?" He concludes, "Researchers have shown that our names take deep root within our mental worlds." drawing us magnetically towards the concepts that they embody. I don't always believe that. I think it's interesting, though, that those people kind of reflect their names. There is an exception. There's an exception if Jesus gives you that name. Jesus tells Peter exactly who he is going to make him be. You will be called Cephas, which means rock. So as Peter comes very willingly, places all his money on the table, because that is the type of person that Peter was. I could imagine that as, as Peter comes to Jesus, and again, Peter doesn't say anything. Jesus looks at Peter, and he's got his two disciples, his two his friends standing by, that he looks at Peter and he goes, You're going to be called the rock. You're going to be called Peter. You're going to be called Cephas. That those two disciples look at one another and they're like, I'm sorry. Does this dude know who he's talking to? Do you think that Peter was any different from what we saw in the gospel accounts of his passion? Uh-uh. He was probably much, much worse at this point. So these guys are like, this dude must be the Messiah because ain't no one changing Peter. And Peter is the guy, remember, Peter's the guy who sees Jesus walking on water and he's like, I'm your man, call me out, right? He calls him out, he steps out on the water and then he sinks like a rock. Why? He lost the faith. And then Peter was the guy who one minute takes out his sword and slices off the ear of a guard, and then the next minute is doing what? Denying Jesus to a slave girl. Peter's the one that after Jesus dies, he says, I'm going fishing, I'm done. Gets in the boat, they see Jesus catching all this fish, and then Peter leaves his friends hanging there, and he jumps into the water after him. Was Peter stable? Uh uh-uh. uh. Was he reliable? Was he steady? Was he a rock? No way. Did it happen overnight? No. Did it happen? Yeah. Why? Because Peter met Jesus, and Jesus is the Messiah. Two things that Jesus does here to confirm exactly what Andrew says about him. We've met the Messiah. The Messiah has the authority to change Peter's name, but guess what? The Messiah has the power to change who Peter is. And that is what he does for each and every one of us. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it will happen. I love what Votie Bauckham says in one of his sermons. I am not now who I want to be, but guess what? I'm not who I once was. Why? Because I met Jesus. And he changed my life. And he changed Peter's life. He took Peter and he made him into that rock. It has nothing to do with Peter. But Jesus saw who Peter was going to be because Jesus was going to transform him into that. That's the power of meeting the Messiah. And that's what he can do for each one of us here today. I'm not who I want to be today. I'm not. I'm kind of like a Peter. I'm all over the place sometimes. Say things that hurt people. Kind of jump in, full bore. Right? The elders know that. They slow down, Pastor Mark. What are you doing? Go this way, that way. Emotions back and forth. But I'll tell you what. I ain't who I used to be either. There's no way. That I saw myself standing here today. But someone did. And his name is Jesus Christ. That is what happens when we meet him. He tells us who we're going to be. Because he's got the power to change us into that. The next way... He sees us where we are, verses 43 through 51. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him. He said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Soon and very soon, this mask is coming off. So the next day, it's really unclear. Uh, The Greek text is unclear who purposes to go into galilee at this time but i've i've made an interpretive decision i i don't think it's jesus it could it could be it could very well could be i I think it's actually andrew um, for a couple reasons because following the the line of this narrative and how the disciples are coming to jesus it kind of would make sense they're all coming to him or being called by him Because he is doing the initiating with them, but people are being brought to him by what? Other people. So in the previous statement, it says, Andrew first found Peter, or Simon. So it kind of makes sense, second, he found who? Philip. So they go into there, and now look at how Philip comes to Jesus. Jesus looks at him, he says two words. He goes, follow me. And Philip's like, all right, I'm good, I'm gone, I'm game, I'm going. Well, what just happened? We, we're all like, it's not that easy, right? There's no way. So we, we don't go up to people and be like, hey, follow Jesus. Yeah, sure, all right, I'm with you. Right, our churches would be overflowing at that. Why? What, what happens here? Why does Philip. Follow Jesus just like that. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. And when the Messiah calls somebody, guess what? They listen. They follow. Jesus is later on is going to say, all of those that the Father gives me, are they going to come to him? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is he going to cast any of them out? Nope. Is he going to lose any of them in the process? Nope. There's your eternal security, folks. And that is the impetus for our evangelism. We don't bring people to Jesus. He calls them to himself. He uses us as that vehicle to call people to himself. And he says... Hey, follow me. It's the same thing when he says to Lazarus, hey, come on out of that tomb. He had to use his name because if he just said it willy-nilly like that, everyone would have came out of their tombs. Because they listen. Because he's the Messiah. So now Philip, in the way that he comes, is contrasted with our little friend Nathaniel. So what's the first thing that Philip does? Do we see the does everyone see the domino effect here? And these guys are what? They're happy, excited to tell people, hey, I found the one who was spoken of in the law and the prophets. Come, come let's go. They're excited. They're not like, um, hey, I met some guy, whose name is Jesus. They're booking out the other way. You got to come and meet them. You want to come to church? They're excited about it. Why? Because their lives have been changed by them. This is a good thing that we know Jesus, right? We want to share that with people. Now, like I said, Philip is now contrasted with the way Nathaniel comes. Philip doesn't need much convincing. Follows suit along with everyone else. He brings others to Christ. Now we meet our first skeptic. It's definitely not our last. So Philip says this. He says, look, we found the one who was spoken of by Moses and the prophets. So this is Moses pointed to the prophet. right? So earlier on, John the Baptist denies that he's what? The prophet. That is the capital P prophet. But also of all the, the references and the foreshadowing to the Messiah that is spoken of in the law, and the prophets. And Nathaniel, he's got a hang-up. What's his hang-up? It's a big claim from someone to be from a small town, a no-name town such as Nazareth. So Nazareth was this little no-name town. It's kind of despised a little bit. It was not famous for anything. And Nathaniel's got a problem. It's a worldly problem. How can this guy come from this town? So I tried to, I tried to put myself in Nathaniel. Because we, we look at Nathaniel, we're like, oh, we want to do that. We don't have any problems. We don't have, we're not skeptical of anything. We'd just be like, we'd be like the Philip, right? Yeah, all right, dude, I'm in. I'm coming. But so I tried to think of what it would be like for Nathaniel. So it would be like someone coming up to me saying hey Mark I met this guy he's the king of the world he's going to save your soul he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and he's going to forgive you your sins and I'd be like okay who is he his name is Jesus okay where is he from he's from Jersey now growing up in PA right Jersey was called and I I love Jersey now if you're from Jersey please I love New Jersey but you know what it was called the armpit of America so I. Right, but it'd be even worse. Okay, what part of Jersey? I mean, I'll give Jersey a little bit. He's from Trenton. It'd be like, dude, you must've just been to Trenton getting drugs because you're high. If you think someone that good is gonna come from Trenton, New Jersey, you're absolutely crazy. There's no way. He ain't coming from Trenton, New Jersey. Can anything good come out of Trenton, New Jersey? So what does, what does, what, what does Philip do at this point? Does he whip out his apologetic notebook? And he starts writing things down. He's like, well, let me, let me kind of break it down to you. He's really not from Nazareth. He's from Bethlehem. If you go back to the prophets, and, and he starts walking Nathanael back, what's he do? He invites him. And believe me, I am, I'm a big believer in apologetics. I think we need to be ready for an answer. It doesn't replace what happens here. Thaniel's skeptical. I'm skeptical of something. I'm unconvinced about something in my life. You know what that is? I am unconvinced that there exists a good beef stew. I'm unconvinced that any good can come from beef stew. I'm an unbeliever. There's never been a beef stew where I've left it and I said, Mmm, that was good. There's never been a beef stew that I said, Hey, can I get can I get seconds of that? There's never been a beef stew where I said, dude, I need to have that again. People have tried to convince me otherwise, yet here I stand. People have said, they tried to explain how their beef stew is so different. I've heard, I've heard it. You, you, my beef, my spices are so different. You just had a bad beef stew experience. You were traumatized with your beef. And people have tried to convince me, convince me, yet I remain an unbeliever. I will tell you something. Jessica Pettengill, if you're watching Jessica, thank you. She made a, a venison stew, not a beef stew. So not a true beef stew. And the venison stew was actually really, really good. Not a beef stew, though. In my mind, no good can come from a beef stew. I won't beef it. <laughs> yeah. Right. It took me a little bit to think of that one. Until I taste it. Nathaniel needs to do Something. He needs to experience Jesus for himself. He's not going to believe until he has that encounter. Bring people to Jesus. Where where can they meet Jesus? Right here. This is where they meet him. All of the apologetics that we do, all of the argumentation that we do, my ultimate goal in witnessing is to get people to read this. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit's a must, much better apologist than I ever will be. This is where they are going to meet him. And when they meet him, Jesus is going to give them what they need. And it, maybe it's not always through the scriptures, but it is through the Holy Spirit that that encounter that in that encounter in which they are convinced that he is the messiah they need to taste it for themselves and that is exactly what happens here with nathaniel he does two things in which really impress nathaniel so the first thing is he looks right at him and he knows who he already is doesn't he and he's not being sarcastic with Nathaniel here. He's being serious. Jesus sees right through us. That's what happens when we read the Bible, isn't it? When I picked up this book, I'm like, this has got to be true because it tells me who I am. Not in always in good ways. Mainly the bad, right? And that's a, that's a lot of times when people back away from Jesus, right? We don't want to see who we are. He kind of compliments him. Says something nice about him. He's a true Israelite. He's a faithful Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And that's going to kind of play in later to what he says after that. But then it's the second thing that really impresses Nathaniel. He gives him exactly what he needs to come to faith in believing that he's the Messiah. Portland police contacted a woman named Amanda to tell her that they found her previously stolen ID. Amanda wasn't convinced. There's no way that the officers did that, so they tried to send her a text. Unsuccessful. Her response there's no way a cop has my cell phone number. Nice try, you creep. Officer Fullington, while impressed with her incredulity, was undeterred. He sent a selfie. Him standing in full uniform in front of his police vehicle, holding the ID card in question. She responded with a laughing, crying emoji saying that she would call after she gets out of work. Just like that story, Jesus is gracious to Nathaniel, and he gives Nathaniel what he needs. He sees him where he is at, not only physically but spiritually, in order to bring him to himself. He confirms his identity. He says, hey, long before Philip called you, I saw you. I knew where you were. I know where you are. And I know what you're going to need to hear, which is this statement to bring you to myself. And Nathaniel, talk about a change in tune. This guy went from a skeptic to an apologist in a matter of seconds. Not only now now is Jesus the son of Joseph, he's the son of God. Not only is Jesus from Nazareth, he's the king of Nazareth and all Israel. What happened? What happened to Nathanael? He met the Messiah. And Jesus confirms here and what he's about to say what he needed to hear he confirms his identity to nathaniel because only the messiah can do that and jesus does that for individuals today he changed nathaniel changed just like that He's worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus promises to him and he's like, dude, that's a parlor trick. You ain't seen nothing yet. I am going to continue to do what? Confirm my identity. Continue to reveal to you who I am. Jesus meets us where we're at to bring us to himself. We, he's going to do that for people today. He did it for my mother-in-law. She, uh, she was at a point in her life where she was just angry at God. Because all the suffering, and she basically cried out to him, God, where are you? You can't be here if all of this suffering exists. A few days later, she received a little booklet in the mail. No return address. No information other than the booklet itself was in the mailbox. And the booklet was on miracles. She says in her testimony, at that point, she believed that God was saying to her, I'm here. Keep looking. He gave her what she needed. And do you know where she's at today? She's with him. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He drew her to himself revealing who he was saving her so she can be with him this is john's main point of the gospel that you may believe and that by believing that jesus is the christ the messiah you may have life new life for peter New life for Nathaniel. new life for me and you. What happens next is even more impressive. Jesus continues to confirm his identity to Nathaniel. He says something that is absolutely awesome, especially given the situation that they were in. He says to him, look. You think that was great? You are going to see greater things in this. You're going to see angels ascending and descending, not on the ladder, but on the Son of Man. And what he's doing here is still confirming his identity to Nathanael. There are parallels here that are just nuts. Jacob was needed convincing, he was kind of skeptical. So what did God do for Jacob? Where was Jacob when Jacob has this vision? He was in a desolate place. A no-name place. He wakes up from the dream and he says this, Surely God is in this place. Nazareth, no-name place. Nathanael, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus Angels ascending and descending, not on the ladder, but on me. Surely God is in this place. Jacob and Nathaniel needed convincing. God gave them exactly what they needed. And God does the same for all of us today. He draws individuals in different ways, leading them to himself, but changing all of them who encounter the Messiah. Stan Telkin, successful Jewish businessman, felt betrayed when his 21-year-old daughter, Judy, called home from college to say this, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Her conversion through him and the entire family into chaos. Stan and His effort to prove his daughter wrong began an energetic quest for the truth. The search for answers spread to Stan's wife, Ethel, their other daughter as well. They were all angry, they were perplexed, and also curious about Judy's radical transformed behavior. When the search created friction between husband and wife, Stan and Ethel, they agreed to pursue their studies of Jesus independently. Months later, Stan accepted an invitation to attend a convocation of Messianic Jews. He planned to work the convention, asking people for information. After a series of meetings, he came to a point of crisis. He believed that the Bible was true, but he could not bring himself to admit and say that Jesus is the Messiah. He asked a roommate to pray for him to resolve his inner conflict. His roommate prayed and said, give Stan your peace and help him with this conflict. Amen. Next morning at breakfast, one of the men at Stan's table asked him to pray before the meal. So this is a Messianic Jew conference. Stan's not a believer, but they asked him to pray, not realizing, some realizing some of this. So he bowed his head and he said this. Praise be thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. I thank you for the fellowship and friendship at this table. I thank you for what we have learned at this meeting. I ask you now to bless this food. Long pause. And I do so in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. For a moment, he, he sat there. He was amazed himself that he said it. And then his friends gathered around. They start congratulating him. But he had one more person to tell. He had to tell his wife. So he calls her up on the phone, not knowing what she's going to say. And he says, honey, it's, it's me. It's over. I made my decision. Jesus is the Messiah. There was a pause in the other line as he held his breath. His wife's voice came back softly. Thank God. That makes it unanimous. We've all been waiting for you. His entire family, wife, both daughters, had also made decisions to trust Christ and her Messiah. They had each been praying, waiting patiently for the Holy Spirit of Christ to draw Stan into a relationship with himself. Jesus calls each one differently while changing all who meet him radically. The daughter, who believed that Jesus was Messiah, her behavior was described as a radical transformation. Why? Because she met Christ. It's not the same way that her father and mother came to him, but the same result. Not the same way that the individuals in our story came to him, but the same result. Change. Maybe you have someone you know today. Maybe they're crazy and unsteady like Peter, can't settle on anything. Or maybe they are skeptical like our friend Nate, not believing that Jesus is God. What is the best thing that you can do for them? Introduce them to Jesus and let Jesus introduce himself to them. It's sure to be a life-changing encounter. Father, we praise you for the way that you have worked in all of our lives here today. You draw us to yourself, revealing who Jesus is, transforming us so that we can go out, bring others to meet you. Help us to do that every day of our lives. Help us to live that transformed life depending on your power, not our own, to bring glory to you